0: Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut-affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications efforts. Welcome sisters and brothers. My name is Jan Hockadel. I'm the president of AFT Connecticut, and I'm proud once again to co-host this latest episode of AFT in Action. Today I'm joined by Jessica Harris, who is the vice president of our local union that represents the registered nurses at Backus Hospital in Norwich. Jessica, I appreciate you adding your voice to this conversation. It's always great to have firsthand experience. And today our topic is nonprofit hospitals and their impacts on budgets. You've been a activist since the organizing drive um, that led to forming a union at Bacchus in 2012. And you've served on the negotiating uh, committee for all of the three contracts. Plus, you've engaged members in a wide variety of actions to win justice and improve working conditions for our fellow nurses. Welcome.
1: right, Jan. Our mid-sized community hospital was taken over in 2013 by a large non-profit healthcare network. That experience laid the groundwork for many of the fights we've had, we've led over the past seven years. That's why I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This issue hangs over so much of what we do every day and not just at Bacchus. All but three of Connecticut's hospitals are run by nonprofits, most by big billion dollar networks like Hartford
0: Healthcare. And that's why we asked you to join me. And this is an issue that hangs over all our members. It's not just healthcare. Nonprofit hospitals and other entities are often the largest employers in their communities and drive a great deal of economic activity, but because of Connecticut's tax laws, they don't contribute resources to support other vital public services.
1: That means they're not supporting budgets that fund local and regional schools, fire, police, and emergency medical response services.
0: Exactly. But to be clear, Connecticut's nonprofit hospitals provide charity care and several conduct important medical research. And they're places where lives are saved every day. But too many are owned, as you said, by these large, top-heavy networks um, with high-paid administrators that are far from the bedside.
1: True, the top brass at Hartford HealthCare, which owns Bacchus, are routinely paid over $2 million each year. Their decisions are often more about increasing the operating margin and less about quality care. Plus, their salaries are overlooked when the
0: network rolls back
1: services or cuts back caregivers at facilities like ours.
0: Right, Jessica. So to tackle this issue and to answer members' questions about nonprofit hospitals, we've asked a legislative leader to sit down and talk with us. And I'm so pleased to welcome State Representative Sean Scanlon to this episode of AFT in Action. Sean, the 2020 session of this legislature is about to begin, so we know that you and your colleagues are extremely busy right now. Thank you for making the time to answer our members' questions.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Sean, we want to talk about nonprofit hospitals and budgets, and I know it's a topic that you're deeply involved in. You're the House Chair for the General Assembly's Insurance and Real Estate Committees, plus you sit on both the Public Health and the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committees. But before we dive into our main topic, let's talk about what brought you to the public service. In your day job, you serve as the director of the Tweed Airport Authority, and prior to that, you worked for 10 years with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. And since being elected to the legislature in 2014, you've taken on a wide range of health and safety issues. Can you share with our members what motivated you to seek a career in public service and eventually elected office?
2: So I come from a family of public servants. My dad was a police officer. My grandfather was a firefighter in the city of New Haven. And I didn't ever think that I would go into politics, but... I randomly got assigned to do a book report on Bobby Kennedy when I was a junior in high school, and I read this book about him by an author that really didn't like him, and the preface of the book was that he thought that the guy was a bad guy, uh, but over spending time with him and seeing him operate and sort of doing the non-conventional things that Bobby was doing in 1968 when he ran for president, which was to talk about things that politicians were not talking about and to going to places that politicians usually didn't go, this guy ended up liking him and writing this book about him, and I was so sort of captivated by the idea that you could go and have a job where you fight for people who don't have strong voices and you go to places that people often neglect. One of the reasons I really got involved in healthcare politics is because of my own experience with my mom. So my parents got divorced when I was six years old My dad, as I said, was a police officer. And so his insurance was through where he was a police officer. It was not where we were. And I was always out of network. So if I got sick, my mom and dad would have to figure out a way to get me to New York, where my dad was from, uh, go there for the doctor. My mom ran a small business. She never had health insurance. She would always be sick, never go to the doctor. If she did, she was always paying cash when everyone else was using cards. And I remember vividly being at the CVS in Guilford and just seeing her so upset and crying because the pharmacist was charging her an exorbitant amount of money for a drug that cost the pharmaceutical company probably nothing to make. And it was really then when I understood what different systems we have in this country for people who have and don't have insurance. Now it's even getting worse because people who have insurance can't afford the health care. And I wanted to do something about that. And so when I got involved in politics, I really wanted to make healthcare care a central focus. At a young age, uh, my seat opened up when I was 27, and I decided to run for it. and uh, It's been uh, a really big honor to serve in this job every day, and uh, I love it.
1: Thanks, Sean. As an emergency department nurse, I really appreciate your advocacy on this front. I've seen firsthand what happens when the uninsured rely on us for their primary care. The reality is that medical insurance allows for the kind of preventative care everyone needs and deserves. In fact, my colleagues and I are concerned about the ongoing attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Can you talk about what's being done in Connecticut to protect Obamacare in spite of the campaign to tear it down?
2: We obviously want to make sure that the ACA stays in place. It's not perfect, but it is doing really good things every single day. And right now is the reason that 300,000 people in our state have health insurance. So that's number one. Number two, um, since I became the chair of the Insurance Committee in 2017 on the same day that President Trump took office, um, it was very clear to everybody in the world that his main priority and the main priority of the Republican Congress was to repeal that law. And so I have done a concerted effort in the last couple of years to put pieces of the ACA into state law. So for example, this session we did pre-existing conditions so that if they'd repeal the ACA, nobody with a pre-existing condition in the state of which there's 500,000 people would be able to be discriminated by their insurance now because it's in state law. Last year we did the explanation of benefits, which is the 10 basically the bill of rights for healthcare where it says that every health insurance plan must cover maternal care, prescription drugs, mental health, hospitalization. Those are all things that would go away if the ACA's are repealed, but now thanks to the fact that we've put them into state law, we at least will have some semblance of protections for the people, but that's not it. We certainly have no plan if the ACA gets repealed tomorrow, nor does Donald Trump, frankly, uh, for those 300,000 people to put them onto back of the insurance. And I really believe that we have to do everything in our power to stop the ACA from being repealed. And one of the best ways that we can do that is to change who's president in 2020.
0: And that's actually a really good lead into to our first member's question. Anne-Marie is a health professional from Tolland who uh, called into our podcast listener line. Many of us work for health
1: networks that for years have been trying to roll back health benefits for their own employees. How can the paid family and medical leave law passed last year benefit working families like mine?
2: Well, it's a great question. anne I thank you for asking me that. I think that paid family leave is one of the things that all of us should be really proud of getting done last year, and uh, this is especially important for me as a new dad because I've sort of seen firsthand um, what it's like to not have that ability. I frankly do because I have the privilege of of a job that allows me to have that, but I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody else that does not have that benefit to be able to have to go back to work right away. Uh, to care for their their child, so uh, I was really proud to vote for that, um, and I really am looking forward to hopefully the negotiations that I know are going to be hopefully happening soon between the different bargaining agents and the state uh, of whether they decide to go into the state paid family leave program. I think it's a really important thing that uh, the different uh, bargaining units should consider, and we hope that they join because the more people that are in the pool, the healthier the program will be.
1: I appreciate that, Sean. Before we talk about nonprofit hospitals' impact on budgets. Let's get a bit of background for our members. The term pilot often comes up in on the context of nonprofits and property taxes. As a union leader, I'm occasionally asked about it, particularly when members are voting on municipal and education budgets in their hometowns. Sean, can you provide an explanation on pilot for those who are not familiar with it?
2: Many, many years ago, the state decided that because of the amount of non-taxable property in different municipalities across the state, that they would come up with a system called pilot, payment in lieu of taxes. The problem is that for hospitals and universities, the pilot rate is supposed to be 77%. And I think if you asked any municipal leader when the last time they got 77% of the reimbursement of what that taxable property would be if they were not given this uh, non-taxable status, they would laugh and tell you that it's never been 77%. Usually it ranges in the 30 to 40%, and that's in good times in the state. We have obviously been having some difficult times. And so I think one of the things that you see a lot, especially from communities like our larger cities, which have credible shares of uh, non-taxable property, I think New Havens is around the 56% of their entire property is not taxable, you see a really big problem occurring, which is that the state is giving less and less money to these municipalities, and the municipalities have less and less options for which to raise money to meet the great needs that these cities have, whether it comes from public services, like first responders, or education. And it's causing a really big problem that I think we are woefully, inadequately unaddressing at the state legislature.
0: So let's talk about the recent tax agreement um, between the Connecticut Hospital Association and the governor's office. I understand it resolved the lawsuits that were filed in 2016 over so-called user fees, as well as hospitals challenging Medicaid payments. It settled a long-standing dispute, but leaves open questions about future state and local um, budgets. Sean, can you walk us through the agreement and what it means for patients and taxpayers?
2: So I think it's a great question. I think, first of all, let me say, I think it's really a really good thing for the state that we did get this agreement. And the main reason for that is because we were facing a $4 billion liability if we didn't. And. Whether or not we should have been down this road in the first place is sort of neither here nor there. We would never be able to sustain that level of a, of a budget hit uh, without vastly crowding out the, the other responsibilities that we have. Um, I also think it's really good that we're gonna see uh, an increased provider rate uh, bump for Medicaid, um, which is something that a lot of docs are now not able or they're stopping to see Medicaid patients uh, because of their provider rates. And I think the fact that we are now gonna see an increase in that is a really good thing. Um, but But as you noted, there is a little uncertainty here because this deal is only good for seven years. And I think there's a big question as to what happens seven years from now, Uh, whether or not this will sort of keep on going or whether we will have to renegotiate something, I think remains to be seen. Uh, But I do think it's a net positive for us in the next seven years to not have this hanging over our head. It was a big elephant in the room, and now it's not.
1: Got it, and thank you for that, Sean. That's a good lead-in to our last member's question, which comes from Chris, an educator from Branford. He sent a message to the podcast email inbox and asked, "What would it take to put together a comprehensive analysis of how nonprofit health network impact cash-strapped local and state budgets?"
2: Well, thank you, Chris from Branford. Uh, hopefully, you live in my district. So. Uh, <laughs> Good to, good to talk to you. Um, I think this is a really important question and sort of about what we were talking about earlier, which is that what do municipalities like Hartford and like New Haven, what do they do about the fact that they're getting less and less money from the state and they're losing more and more money as universities and hospitals and hospital systems grow? Um, we're at 56% in New Haven right now. That really can't grow much more uh, at a sustainable level. And so number one, I think we need to look at what's happening here. We don't really know. How much is growing? What is that growth? look like? What are the neighborhoods that it's occurring in? uh, And and how does that impact the cities that they live in? Um, Number two is I think we need to obviously have a really tough conversation at the federal and state level about what we can do to support our cities more. The success of Brantford, Chris, where you live and Guilford, where I live, depends on the success of New Haven. And we need to stop looking at this as we're all 169 different kingdoms apart and separate from one another. Um, And number three, I think we need to look at what the responsibilities these universities and hospitals have in terms of being good neighbors in their cities and towns and communities. Um, Some of these hospitals do, obviously, to their credit, make some voluntary payments but are those payments sizable enough to actually offset the cost of how much money they're not getting in pilot money anymore? And when we do all the math of that and we figure all this out, I think we need to have a really big conversation as a community. And I stress the word community. We're all in this together. Um, And if you're in New Haven or you're in Hartford, or you're in Bridgeport, we need to figure out what the next 10, 20, 30 years of those cities looks like. Because if those cities are struggling, Connecticut will continue to struggle. And I hope to be a part of that conversation.
0: Sean, is consolidation a part of
2: this? It absolutely is. And I'll, and I'll give you a good example. In, in 2017, um, Anthem and the Hartford healthcare system had a very big dispute over renewing their contract. And for about a month and a half, there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in the state, pretty much half of our state, that were not able to go to routine doctor's appointments. They had gallbladder removal surgeries cancel. I had a woman call me and said her cancer treatments were postponed because of this. Uh, we ended up passing a law uh, to make sure that this never happens again and that the contract maintains while the negotiation happens, and I'm really, really proud of passing that law. Um, but in the short term, it really shed a light on some really concerning practices here, which is that these large hospital systems are growing and growing and growing to the point that when one of them gets in a dispute with one single insurance company, hundreds of thousands of people's lives are impacted. And like I said, we did pass a law to prevent that from happening again. But what we really need to do is look at healthcare consolidation in general. Is it really a good thing to have two massive systems controlling everything? And if it's not, what can we do either on our own at the state level or to work with them to try to make sure that the consumers are protected? Because I think that has got to be our main focus at the end of the day what is best for the patients and their health care, and not necessarily about what is good for the interests of a business.
0: Well, our listeners now know why we tapped your policy expertise and legislative experience for this discussion. Your answers to our members' questions will certainly inform our union's effort at the Capitol this year. Um, And thank you again for sitting down with us, especially during this busy time. And um, I hear you have your own podcast. You want to tell us about that?
2: I do. So I have a podcast called What's Up with Blank, and I try to tackle subjects that people think they know a little bit about, like policing or the DMV, um, but they actually would benefit from learning more and some hearing some different voices. So uh, I did one season. You can find it on iTunes or SoundCloud right now if you want to. Search what's up with that. Um, But I also want to let you know that I'm having a second season coming up where I'm going to focus on some young people in Connecticut who are doing some really cool things. I think we unfortunately have a really big culture of negativity in our state when there is awesome things, incredible things happening each and every day uh, in every single city in town in Connecticut where young people are leading the way, whether it's opening restaurants, doing amazing art, uh, starting businesses, that I think we should be highlighting more about what's good in Connecticut and not always focusing on the bad. That's
0: fantastic, and thank you again. I know I'll be listening. And Jessica, I'm so glad that you're a part of this podcast. I appreciate your contributions to both um, our state federation, but the, also the wider labor movement um, and that you and your co-workers have made, from volunteering for relief missions to walking the picket lines Backus nurses have always been all in.
1: Thank you, Jan. I was glad to do it. Sharing experience and knowledge to benefit other members is a great example of the you and I in union.
0: It sure is. And finally, I want to thank our members for listening to this latest episode of AFT in Action. I hope the discussion was interesting and helpful in understanding a complex issue. Once again, I invite questions for our next episode. We will be taking on the subject of the 2020 census and why a complete count is so important for Connecticut. Sending comments to, by email are sent to actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A-C-T-N-E-T-R-E-P-L-Y at sign A-F-T-C-T dot Plus, you can leave a voice message by dialing 860-257-9782 and asking for extension 116. That's 860-257-9782, extension 116. I'm really looking forward to including your voices, so thank you in advance for being heard. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too and help build the power of the you and I in union.